0: This Parsha Podcast is dedicated in honor of two engagements. Two friends of the Parsha Podcast recently got engaged. Longtime listener and dear friend, Noah Katz, he got engaged to Hannah Baumgarten and Julian Kritz, a dear friend, and of course the son of our dear friends, Dr. Alan and Phyllis Kritz. He also got engaged to Sarah Frank. We wish them a hearty Parsha Podcast muzzle of Wishes. May they each build a beautiful Jewish home and a beautiful Jewish family together, homes that are replete with happiness, with joy, and with harmony. Before we begin, I want to let you know about a podcast that I just recorded, not on the Parsha podcast, but on one of my other shows, This Jewish Life. We're doing an ongoing series of interviews about the war, and about the state of the nation in Israel. And I actually had a very special set of guests. My oldest brother, Rabbi Eliezer Walby, and his wife Malki, these are some of the most special people in my life. I interviewed them about the spiritual awakening that's happening now in Israel. It was a highlight for me to have them on the podcast. And if you have some time, give it a listen. I recommend it on the This Jewish Life podcast. Well, it's the final installment of the book of Genesis, Parshas Vayechi. It's also the last new Parsha podcast of the year. With the help of the Almighty, we have recorded a Parsha podcast every single week this year. I want to thank you all for your amazing and dedicated listenership. You have no idea how valuable it is to me to know that you're listening and that gives me a deadline and nothing makes you more productive or as productive as deadlines. And I know if I'm a little bit late, the emails will come flooding you in. What's going on? Where's my fix? Where's my dose of Parsha podcast? And it just forces you to be productive. It's a very helpful way to be productive. I'm very appreciative of that. It's been a great year. And please, God, 2024 will also be a great year for the Parsha podcast and for the rest of the podcasts from the Torch Center in Houston, Texas. And of course, hopefully it will be a year of salvation for our people, both in the United States and the diaspora, and of course, our brothers and sisters in Israel. We pray for them every day and we wish and we hope that there is peace and there is stability and security and everyone who is injured is healed, those who lost loved ones are comforted, and those who are held hostage are released. In this PowerShift Podcast, we are going to cover two segments. We're going to start off with a powerful lesson about the power of overcoming challenges. And then the second segment is going to be a subject that I don't believe I ever spoke about on the podcast. It's a very important one. It's a very serious one. It's one that I've been criticized for not speaking about, and I probably will earn some criticism for speaking about it now. So you can't win. You can't win. You can't make everyone happy. But you know what? They may be right. Maybe I'm making a mistake talking about it. Some say to ignore it entirely. Maybe... Someone can argue this is not the right forum for doing it, but ultimately I decided to talk about it, and I think that it does fit our mandate here on year eight of the Parsha podcast. You know, this year's theme is DAD, and DAD stands for deep and deeper, and we're trying to go deeper into the study of the Parsha and to try to see behind the scenes and get into some of the storylines and the narratives and the elements and the aspects of the parasha that we have yet to cover. So this is going to be a deep study of an idea that it's an important idea in our lives. It's also a broad theme that spans many places in the book of Genesis. But it's also a study of our literal dad, our forefather, Jacob. Now, I want to just say as a disclaimer, I imagine that some of y'all may have never even heard of the subject in segment number two. So maybe you should brace yourself for, for something a bit uh, unexpected. We're going to broach a sensitive topic. We're not going to obsess over it. We'll talk about it, try to get to the heart of the matter, and then proceed onwards with the help of the Almighty. From the Torch Center in Houston, Texas, my name is Yaakov Wolby. Nice to meet you. My email address is RabbiWolby at Gmail. Segment number one focuses on the promotion of Ephraim and Menashe. Joseph had two sons born to him prior to the arrival of his father and the rest of his family to Egypt. The two sons are Ephraim and Menashe. And these two are promoted. They are elevated above their siblings. And they are elevated to be the status of Tribes. The tribes, of course, are the sons of Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons, and each one of them is the father of a tribe. But Joseph is really split into two. And Joseph's two sons, even though they are an added layer removed from Jacob, they are elevated to have the status of tribes on their own. And in our Parsha, we read how Jacob tells Joseph before he passes, that your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I arrived to here, to you in Egypt, they're mine. Your sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, are like my sons, Reuven and Shimon. And then he tells him, but the subsequent children that were born after I arrived in Egypt, they're not mine, they're yours. And they will join their brothers, namely Ephraim and Manasseh. They'll be part of their respective tribes. They will not be part. They will not have the status of tribes of their own. Only Ephraim and Manasseh who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I arrived. And many of the commentators find that these verses or certainly the verse, the first verse, which is 48 five, chapter 48 verse five, they have some superfluous words. Jacob is declaring that Ephraim and Manasseh, the two sons of Joseph, they are like Reuven and Shimon. They are elevated. They are on the level, on the status of tribes. But he tells us that they were born to you in the land of Egypt before I arrived. Whenever there are Words in a verse that can be omitted, and the verse will seem to tell us the same lesson, it should get our attention. Certainly, after 12 episodes of Dad, year eight of the Parsha podcast, we should definitely try to start to notice these kinds of things. If the verse had simply said, your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh are, are mine, are like Reuven and Shimon, everything that we need to be told, we would know. But that's not what it says. Your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I arrived, they're mine, Ephraim and Manasseh will be like Reuben and Shimon. So the question is, why is this germane? Why are there extra verses? It seems that the elevation of these two, of Ephraim and Manasseh is linked to this part of their storyline. Because they were born in Egypt to Joseph prior to, to the arrival of Jacob. That is why they are elevated to the status of Reuven and Shimon. And those who were born subsequently, they don't have that same distinction. They will fall under the categories of Ephraim and Manasseh They'll join those brothers as, as members of their tribes, but they will not have their own tribe. And one of the ideas that the commentaries all tell us over here is that there's something very special about Ephraim and Manasseh specifically because they were raised in Egypt and not just in Egypt, but in Egypt prior to the arrival of Jacob and his family. Joseph was a viceroy of Egypt, but he had come from Canaan and he had come from this great family. He's the son of Jacob and the grandson of Isaac, and the great-grandson of Abraham. He's part of this glorious dynasty that's responsible to bring the entire world towards perfection. Joseph is a scion of a very prestigious family who stands for values and mores and ways of living and principles and beliefs and tenets that are completely at odds with the Egyptian way of life. And Joseph is thrown into a world in Egypt where all the forces, all the social mores and expectations are radically different than what he came from. And Joseph had to work really hard to shield himself from those influences and to raise his children in such a hostile environment, such a spiritually hostile environment, that they should be worthy of being included in the great family, the great lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that was very difficult. And he had to work really hard to shield them from the influences, and to protect them, and to go against the grain. And he had no infrastructure to rely upon. There wasn't a school of Abraham and families of Abraham and and Jacob, a patriarch to look up to. It's Joseph and his small little family against the entire world, the entire country. And Joseph pulled it off and he's able to produce sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who are worthy of being part of this glorious lineage. Of being on par with Reuven and Shimon. And Joseph is told by Jacob, this is why they are being elevated. You pulled off the impossible. They were born before I arrived, before there was a mass of people that thought the way you thought, that operated, that behaved, that believed the way you believe. And somehow you were able to raise them to become such studs That is grounds for them to be extra special, to be exceptional. The ones that were born subsequently, yes, they had to be raised in Egypt, but it wasn't quite the same Egypt. You had Jacob and Jacob's children and the 70 souls. It's a very different Egypt. Now, there's a few ways to frame this idea. One idea is that, well, anything that's really hard to do, they had to work really hard, tenaciously hard to accomplish. The harder you work to achieve a certain goal, the greater that goal will be. The yield will match the effort, maybe not on the physical realm, in the material realm, in the financial realm, but certainly in the spiritual realm. Joseph's task when it came to raising a and Manasseh. It was very different than his task of raising his subsequent children. The task with Ephraim and was to raise these children in an ocean of idolatry, in an ocean of paganism, in an ocean of all sorts of beliefs and ways of living that are completely antithetical to what you stand for. That's what Joseph was facing when it came to raising Ephraim and And he pulled it off. And the result of such hard work is sons that are elevated to the level of Reuven and Shimon. Whereas the subsequent sons, it wasn't so hard. No pain, no gain. Little pain, little gain. Lots and lots and lots of pain. You have a of Manasha And therefore, Jacob is telling him, the sons that were born to you in the land of Egypt before I was there, You have to work so hard, so extra hard to raise them properly. Those sons, they, because of those reasons, they are on a different level. Now, I saw a beautiful piece in the Darash Moshe, where he takes it in a slightly different different direction, the, the same concept. He says, that Jacob, Jacob did a stellar job in raising Joseph. Of course, any parent wants to raise their child so that the child, you know, grows up to be a good adult, a responsible adult, a productive adult, someone who contributes to society, someone who gives them nachas, gives them pride, someone who lives up to a certain ideal, a certain standard of living. Every parent wants that. But what are the circumstances, are the conditions in which our children will have to live? For most of us, we try to craft an environment for our children that's going to be conducive to the kind of ideals we want to impart in our children. So, of course, as Jews, we want our children to know that they're Jewish and and to be prideful about that and to live in an environment that encourages that, that exudes that. And if we're fortunate enough to have a foothold of, of Torah within our hearts, we want to encourage our children to also connect to Torah. And we send our children to Jewish schools and we're members of the shul, And we try to get them Jewish friends. Jacob, he very much instilled in his children the values that he stood for. And he did it to such a degree that not only did all of his children follow in his path, but even when his son Joseph, at a tender age of 17, was snatched out of his family and sent into slavery and had to endure some of the most difficult challenges that any adolescent can face and was tempted in ways that are hard for us to even fathom and had the strength of character and the tenacity to withstand all those tests and to pass and triumph over all those challenges. And not only that, when he built his family again far away from the ideal setting to raise a Jewish family, he instilled those ideals into his children. So think about that. Where would that start? Jacob is raising Joseph with such conviction, with such a conviction into the value system of Jacob that Joseph is able to not only maintain that in a very hostile environment, but he's also able to perpetuate that to his children. And all that is attributable back to Jacob. And therefore, Jacob is saying, if you read the verses, the verses say something very interesting. Jacob says in, in verse 5 of chapter 48, your two sons, they're your sons, right? They were born to you in the land of Egypt before I arrived. Lee, Haim, to me they are, meaning they're mine. And Ephraim and Manasseh are like Reuben and Shimon. They are like To me, what Jacob is is telling Joseph and and really telling us is that why or where can you trace the greatness of a and Menasha? You could trace it back to me. That's what Jacob is saying, because the environment that I created for you, or the 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 inculcation of our values I created for you, was so strong. That you maintained it, you preserved it, and you perpetuated it in your children. And thus the fingerprints of Jacob are on Ephraim and Manasseh to such a degree that they are effectively his children. And that's why he says, if they're my children, well, then they're part of the tribes. Whereas the other children, well, they were raised in a much more conducive environment. And you don't necessarily need the same sort of tenacious adherence to values. Because after all, they're in a conducive environment. On the other children, you don't see the fingerprints of Jacob. And therefore, they're yours. And yes, they're great, but they don't elevate to the level of tribes but this is telling us a few different ideas but it's telling us that really only Jacob's sons qualify to be tribes but Ephraim and Manasseh they are like they are akin to being the sons of Jacob because you can trace their greatness back to their grandfather I love this idea I love particularly how it's read into the verse but I also think it's it's a it's a powerful message and a timeless one Jacob is telling us what he did when he raised Joseph. He raised him with such resolve, with such intestinal fortitude, that Joseph was able to endure and shine, notwithstanding everything that happened to him. He's enslaved and he's tempted and he's very far away and he probably has legitimate gripes with his family. And he stays strong. And he perpetuates it onward. All that was the handiwork of Jacob. And that's the expectation of us when we parent. To raise our children that they have conviction and resolve. And they should be fortified to be able to enter the lion's den. Be that Egypt or any society, or group, or setting that is antithetical to what we are preaching, they should enter that and emerge unharmed. Of course, we would never send the kids into the lion's den, but if circumstances, if providence brings them to such places, if they received the same sort of rock-solid education and rearing and parentage that Jacob bestowed upon Joseph, they can enter those settings and emerge unharmed and even be able to perpetuate that onwards to their children. A lot of Jews today, you know, we're in the middle of the war, of course, and there are all sorts of instances of anti-Semitism that are arising particularly in many college campuses, as you know. And Jews on college campuses are unfortunately targets for anti-Semitism and anti-Israel sentiments. And many of them are surrounded by ideologies, by values, by beliefs that are antithetical to what their parents trained them. We throw our our own children, not me, I haven't done this, but the the, the American way of life is to take our own children and throw them into Egypt and throw them into the lion's den and place them in settings and circumstances where their beliefs and the ideals and the values that we worked so hard to inculcate in our children are going to be severely challenged. And we have to think about this way ahead of time, way ahead of time. We have to find ways, tactics, and strategies to inculcate our values so deeply that notwithstanding whatever winds, whatever maelstrom our children are thrown into, that they don't get sucked into the vortex, that they maintain the resolve of Joseph to not only continue on and to not be swayed, And to not succumb to what they're going to be exposed to, but to also have the resolve to pass that forward. I thought it was a very particularly beautiful lesson. It's a topical one for us today and uh, a very uh, important one to think about as parents and as educators. Okay, let's begin segment number two. We'll start off with a verse in the parasha, chapter 49. Jacob is on his deathbed and he wants to bless his sons. And he blesses them in order with Ruvain beginning first. So Jacob summons his children and initially wants to reveal to them what's going to happen in the end of days. But ultimately he settles to give them just a blessing. And these blessings are very poetic, very beautiful and very multi-dimensional. And he starts off with Reuven, you are my firstborn. Kochi, my strength. Veracious Oni, and the first of my vigor. And then he tells him, you were destined to be the priest, and you were destined to be the king, but you were impetuous like water, and therefore you'll lose out. Sorry, you're going to lose out. Now, because you intervened, you got involved in Jacob's sleeping setting Jacob's conjugal life. Therefore, you uh, defiled me to a certain extent, and therefore you will be demoted. Now, what does it mean where Jacob tells us, Jacob tells Reuven, you're my firstborn, my strength, and the first of my vigor. So Rashi says something very surprising. Rashi says that Ruvain was conceived from the very first drop of biological reproductive fluid that ever emerged from Jacob's body because he never had a seminal emission in his life. And that's what it means that Ruvain is the first of my vigor because he emerged from the very first drop of reproductive fluid that was emitted from Jacob. Now, this is fascinating on its own. We know, of course, that on the wedding night that Jacob got married, he was under the impression that he was with Rachel because Laban had done the switcheroo. So the night that Reuben was conceived... Jacob was under the impression he's with, he's with Rachel. Turns out in the morning he discovers he was with Leah. Very interesting. But if you do the calculation, how old was Jacob at that time? So Rashi at the very end of Parshas, told us, tells us that when he usurped the blessings, he was 63 years old. And then he spent 14 years studying in the Academy of Shame and Aver. And then he worked for seven years for the rights to marry Rachel. So you add these years together, 63 plus 14 is 77, plus 7. He's 84 at the time. And our sources tell us that Jacob had not had a single seminal emission until that point. Now, it's already established earlier in the Torah that God does not like wasting seed. The idea of misallocating this very precious fluid, That's an idea that God is very displeased with. You recall chapter 38 of Genesis. Judah had two sons, one named Er and one named Onan, that died because they spilled their seed. The verse says so explicitly about Onan. And Rashi points out that it says that Onan died because he spilled the seed, and he also died. So it doesn't say he died, he also died. And Rashi tells us that means that he died for the same reason as Er did. Er and Onan, the two sons of Judah, died because they did what was evil in the eyes of Hashem. They spilled their seed. This is an amazing idea. The Torah tells us that the, the sons of Judah, two sons, Er and Onan, they were evil in the eyes of God, which is a very, very harsh description. And Rashi explains that they deliberately sought to prevent Tamar from becoming impregnated. Er didn't want to diminish her beauty. And Onan, because he was marrying her in the form of, of Leverite marriage, he did not want, want children that would not be attributable to him. They would be attributed to his brother. He says, okay, we'll just we'll skip out the children. But the verse tells us that this is why they died young. Now the Talmud. When the Talmud speaks about this idea, this prohibition against spilling seed, the Talmud says that from the fact that we see Aaron Onan died for this reason, this tells us that if someone deliberately emits seed in a way that's not going to contribute to a uh, procreational setting, that is something that warrants the death penalty, obviously, because it happened to Aaron Onan. And the Talmud continues, well, it's it's akin to idolatry. So the Talmud uses very harsh, very strong language about this idea, the misallocation of the procreational fluid. Now, of course, this is talking about the, the willful wasting of seed, and Jacob, we are told, he never had a seminal omission in his life, not willful, deliberate, not accidental or unintentional, until he's 84 years old at the conception of Ruvain. So This is an amazing idea, something we hear about, about Jacob. This is one of the hallmarks of Jacob. Now, it really fits into part of a larger theme in Jacob's life. Nothing with Jacob, nothing ever went to waste. Everything that Jacob did, everything that he had, everything that he said was purposeful, was accurate, was valuable. And I actually, I collected some sources from Genesis to demonstrate this. For example, the first thing we're told about Jacob, first thing is that when he was born, his hand was clutching the heel of his older brother, his twin brother, Asaph. That seems like a nice family story for the family lore, right? Oh, how cute he was holding on to his ankle. What does Rashi say? Rashi says, no, no, no. This is not just some nice little anecdote. This is a sign of the destiny of these two nations, these two warring nations, Jacob and Asaph, that Asaph will have the head start and it'll seem like he's about to triumph and Jacob will come and grab the ankle and ultimately win. This is, again, the, the very first thing we told about Jacob, and this is emblematic of lots of stories in his life that his actions or his words or his deeds seem to be random or or that they may seem to not have much value. But we discover, certainly Rashi helps us along the way, that they're all purposeful. And there's nothing that's a waste. And there's nothing in vain. Another example. During the whole usurpation of the blessings, this is chapter 27 of Genesis, Every time it appears that Jacob is telling a lie, Rashi painstakingly explains how it's actually, no, it's not a lie. He's maybe brushing close to it, but he's not speaking in vain. He's not speaking falsely. After Jacob spent 20 years with Laban and he fled, he absconded in the middle of the night. And then Laban pursued and he accused Jacob, of all sorts of things, including the stealing of the Trophim, which is Laban's idol. And chapter 31, verse 32 of Genesis tells us that Jacob said, the person who stole it will not live. And the verse tells us that Jacob had not known that Rachel, in fact, stole it. And Rashi tells us, that even though Jacob's curse, he, he had thought that it would not apply to anyone. We don't know what happened to Laban's truffle We didn't take it. But he made this curse. And Rachel took it. And because of this curse, Rachel died. A word from Jacob that the person won't live and they're dead. That's what Rashi is telling us. Everything is purposeful. Everything is on point, nothing is wasted. Nothing is in vain. If Jacob levies a curse, that curse will hit and will cause damage. And by the way, this will be grounds for the brother's concern that if if Joseph is bad-mouthing us to Jacob, that could be fatal for us. Because if Jacob just elicits one curse, he utters one curse, we're dead. More examples. Jacob became in danger because he forgot some small jobs. Again, the idea of everything being purposeful. There's nothing that's just extra. There's nothing that's wasted. Jacob tells Asaph, I have everything. Everything is purposeful. Jacob again tells Asaph, this is chapter 33 verse 14, I will arrive in Seir. I'll, I'll get to you. And Rashi explains he will get to him. Not, not, not in this trip, but that's the final destination of the Jewish people before Messiah. Another example, after Jacob is shown Joseph's bloody and shredded tunic, he said he was mauled by a wild animal. This is the tunic of my son, Chayara Achalasu. He was eaten by a bad, savage animal. He was torn by a beast. It seems like Jacob is making a mistake. So Rashi already corrects us. Rashi says, no, no, no. This is prophetic. Because what happened? Joseph was attacked by a beast. What happens? He arrives in Egypt and he's prepositioned by this woman that wants to destroy him for all eternity. 42, one. This is when there's a famine in Canaan and Joseph, unbeknownst to his family, is installed as the viceroy of Egypt. The verse says that Jacob saw that there was salvation in Egypt. So says, Rashi, wait a minute. He saw, he heard. He didn't see it. He hadn't gone there. No, 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 no. He saw it prophetically. He saw that there's salvation. He saw that there is redemption in Egypt because he saw prophetically that Joseph is there. And when he tells his sons to go down there, this is chapter 45, verse 2, he says, reduce descend down there. And the commentator says, wait a minute, how do you tell someone to descend, to go down? Oh, it must be that there's something purposeful about that. Jacob says, redu, go down, which is not something you say. You don't, you don't tell another person to go down. The word redu, if you tally up the, the numerical value of those letters, it's 210. Jacob is prophesying without even knowing, perhaps, that the Jewish people will be in Egypt for, for 210 years. Now after they go down, Shimon is taken by this viceroy and then he demands to see Benjamin and Jacob initially is very reluctant to send Benjamin. And when he finally accedes to send Benjamin, verse 14 of chapter 43, he gives a prayer. May God give you mercy before the man and he'll send your brother and then it says, Acher, other, brother, other. So you could read that as the other brother. But again, the word Acher could be omitted from the verse. And again, Rashi tells us, why is there an extra word? Acher, it's again an unwitting prophecy. He's prophetically invoking the fact that the other brother, Joseph, will be redeemed. Again, this is the theme we see throughout the life of Jacob. No word, no action, no deed of Jacob is in vain. In our parsha, he's given two sons and he crisscrosses his hands and it's all calculated. It's all purposeful. The right hand has to be on Ephraim. The left hand has to be on Menashe. And Rashi tells us by the blessings that this idea of nothing in Jacob's life being Wasted or in vain, this extended to his reproductive seed. There was nothing in vain. There was nothing wasted, not willfully and not unintentionally. Now, what's not so understood yet is why is this viewed with such seriousness in the literature? What's so catastrophic about spilling seed? Why is it treated with such harshness in the Torah? Why are we told in the Talmud that it's it's really a capital crime and it's tantamount to murder on some level or idolatry? Now, to be clear, the court will not execute someone for this transgression. And there are other examples where the Talmud tells us that this thing is tantamount to murder or to idolatry, and it's not actually so. Like, for example, the Talmud says that if you live in the diaspora, it's like you don't believe in God someone lives in Chutzlor, it's outside the land of Israel, it's like someone doesn't have a god. It's like tantamount on some level, in some degree, to idolatry. The Talmud says, well, if you're studying Torah and you interrupt your Torah study, it's a capital offense. Of course, it's not an actual capital offense. It means that on some level, in some degree, in some dimension, there is an overlap between a capital offense and interrupting Torah study. But why is this so important? And why is it important for us to know what what does it matter that Jacob was so preternaturally exceptional in his self-control and the fact that Ruvain is the first of his vigor? So I want to share with you an incredible piece that I saw in the Megala Amukras in the Kabbalistic literature. It's fascinating, it's sprawling, it's absolutely ingenious. But of course, it's very cryptic as all his pieces are. And some of the ideas are a bit ambiguous or I couldn't understand it with absolute clarity. So I'm going to share with you the way I understood them. And he starts with Jacob's lament to Pharaoh. When Jacob meets Pharaoh, Pharaoh says, how old are you? This is chapter 47, verse 9 of Genesis, last week's Parsha. And Jacob says, well... The days of my sojourns are 130 years old. They were few and they were bad. And they didn't quite rival the years of my forefathers in their years of sojourn. Of course, Jacob is complaining, but it's not, he's not simply quetching. Okay. There's nothing of Jacob that is in vain. Absolutely nothing. And the Kabbalists tell us that the first 130 years of Jacob's life, that is connected to Adam and the rectification of Adam's sin. And they tell us that Adam was in the garden, and he had Eve, and he had Cain and Abel, And we have the terrible catastrophic sin and he's demoted and he's diminished. And for Shabbos, he's still able to maintain some of that primordial light. But then Shabbos ends and he's plunged into darkness. And Adam was very despondent and depressed and then he discovered fire and we try to kind of channel that with the Havdalah. And overnight he's terrified because it's all dark. Maybe light's lost forever. And then the morning happened. Sunday. What did Adam do on Sunday? What did he do after he's booted from the garden? So the sources tell us that he entered the waters of Dichon. Dichon is one of the four rivers that depart from Eden. Chapter 2 of Genesis, verse 13. Now what did he do there. So there are various different sources about what he did. One opinion says that he was there for 130 years. And he was there by himself, well, mostly by himself, without Eve. You know, the verse tells us chapter 5 of Genesis that Adam was 130 years old when he had a child named Seth, Shays. What was happening for the, those 130 years? So the sources tells he was in this river Dichon and he had departed from his wife. And the Midrash tells us that when he has a son named Shays, named Seth, that's really his son. But all the themes, shall we say, all the progeny, if you will, that Adam had beforehand, they weren't really his descendants, weren't really his children. And the Midrash tells us what were they? They they were spirits. This is, by the way, found in, in the regular Midrash, not even the Kabbalistic Midrash. For 130 years after the sin, husband and wife, Adam and Eve apart from each other and forces spirits male ones cleaved to eve and she had children with these spirits and female spirits cleaved to adam and he had children hybrid children if you will with them this is what the sources tell us for 130 years adam was not with Eve, but he was still producing children of sorts. And they explain that the seed of Adam, it was in fact captured, but it was not with his wife, Eve, to produce holy children. It was captured by all sorts of impure forces. Specifically, his first wife, whose name I will not pronounce, because we're told not to pronounce it, but she's called Lil for short. You knew that Adam had a first wife, right? Did you know that? Adam had a first wife, and uh, they they fought incessantly, and she left, and then Adam got a second wife, and that's Eve. Eve. But the first wife stuck around and she took, effectively, all the seed that came out of Adam, that came out of Adam but did not go into Eve. She grabbed it and she used it to produce all sorts of things, entities, children, if you will, but ones that are not really attributable to Adam them spirits, demons, little Lil's. I actually, had a conversation with my colleague Rabbi Cohn here at the torch center. He's our resident Kabbalist. And he was calling Adam's first wife. He's calling her. He's like, We don't, we don't call her by her name. She's called Jane Doe. That's what he said. She's called Jane Doe. Or Plonit or Lil. But she what she does is that she grabs any misappropriated drops of seed and takes it for herself, and spawns with that all sorts of demons and spirits. The seed's very precious. They they don't have access to those seeds. But the second that Adam is, (laughs) again, to use Robert Cohen's terms, he was in the hot tub in this river for 130 years, and every night he would be visited by his These two women, Naama and this little figure, and they take any available seed for themselves. Now, I'll tell you something very spooky. In the city of Jerusalem, there is a custom that male descendants of a deceased person do not participate in the funeral, they could be there, but they cannot walk at all after the beer, after the the uh, the the body, the corpse. And they make an announcement, and they say, all the descendants of this person should not follow the the bed, should not follow the coffin. And the reason for this is. Because it's not just with Adam that there are these forces that come and collect any misappropriated seed and use it for their own purposes to spawn all sorts of entities. It's true even today. Misappropriated seed creates all sorts of demons. And these are, on some level, they're like the children of the person who spawned them. And the reason why we don't want any of a person's descendants, at least the the custom of Jerusalem, we don't want any of the descendants to follow the bed. And we make an announcement, they make an announcement, that none of the descendants of the deceased should take even one inch, one step past the coffin, it's because we don't want all those other children of this person to follow him from that seed. It's collected by the lills, if you will. And it spawns all sorts of forces that we cannot see and we cannot appreciate. But those Forces will terrorize. This is what the sources say. They will terrorize and cleave and not allow that person to leave, to go to their place of resting. And as a way to circumvent this, they make this blanket announcement that none of the descendants may follow. And that includes the descendants, the way we think of descendants, and the descendants that are totally invisible to all of us, but are now visible to the deceased. That's what pointed out, by the way, if you look at our Parsha, Jacob dies. And who follows his bed? All of his sons. By Jacob's funeral, they did not make this announcement and the commentaries tell us because Jacob is the one person that's completely invulnerable to this. He did not have a single misallocated drop. Never. So he is impervious to this. Everyone else, not necessarily. So Adam was separate from his wife for 130 years and had some misallocated seed and that was swooped up by the first wife and is created into all sorts of spiritual demons and spirits. And really this is two problems. Problem number one, that there's the sin of Adam. Problem number two, what about all those souls that are now captured or trapped in these hybrid forms? And by the way, when I spoke to Robert Cohn, he called them hybrids. I'm I'm using his terminology and he's like, we're not talking about the hybrids and, and what they're all about. Maybe that'll be for some other Parsha podcast. Now, Jacob was 130 years old when he arrived in Egypt, and he tells us that his years were short and difficult. The Kabbalists tell us that Jacob, thanks to his superlative holiness, he spent 130 years in stunning purity, and thereby he fixed, he rectified the 130 years of Adam in the hot tub in the river with his sin. This is a major theme, by the way, in our philosophy, that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they are the rectification of Adam. We spoke about this on some of my other podcasts. I don't know if I ever spoke about it on the Parsha podcast. I feel like I did, but I don't remember. I have to speak to the official archivist. Now, you recall, perhaps, when Jacob usurped the blessings from Esau, Isaac is blind and he smells his garments and he says, behold, the aroma of my son is like the smells at the aroma of the field that was blessed by God. This is 27, 27 of Genesis. And Rashi tells us, what does this mean? Wait, the, the clothes that Jacob was wearing, it was hunting garments. And it was made out of goatskin. That's not known for its pleasant aroma. So Rashi explains that the aroma, the scent of paradise, of Gan Eden, of the Garden of Eden, entered with Jacob. Jacob is someone that embodies the fixed version of Adam. Adam, when he was still in the garden, before you become all corrupted, Adam before his sin. That's the aroma that accompanied Jacob. For 120 years, Jacob is working on fixing the sin of Adam. And he arrives in Egypt. And in Egypt, now it's time to fix not just the sin of Adam, but the result of the sin of Adam, namely those souls that are trapped in all those hybrids. The Jewish people are in Egypt for 210 years. It's like the word redu, descend, 210 years. Moshe was 80 when they left. So how many years were the Jews in Egypt before Moshe was born? Again, 130. So 130 plus 80 is 210. The Kabbalists tell us that all those souls were the souls of Adam or of descendants of Adam that had been captured by the dark side. Now, not to jump ahead too far, in chapter one of Exodus, so Netri's Parsha, Pharaoh is insistent that all the males born to the Jewish people should be thrown into the river. He doesn't want them executed in a different way, specifically in the river. Why the river? The Kabbalists tell us that Pharaoh understood all of this, and he's a representative of the other side, and he understood where they came from. They came from the river, and he's trying to send them back to the river. But of course, Pharaoh is unsuccessful, and those souls filtered through and were brought to their rectification. So we have 260 years, 130 of Jacob before the descent to Egypt, 130 in Egypt and we fetch the sin of Adam, or at least one element of it. And right away, Moshe is born. And the first thing we're told about Moshe, she has a son, Vatera Oso She sees he's good. This is the first good baby in 130 years. Now, the Megalomukos, he, Throws in some gematria. The word vatera, and she sees that's the word sit that equals the gematria. The numerical value equals six oh seven, which is the same as Adamarishon, as Adam, Adam the first. And then he quotes the Zohar. The Zohar says that at that moment of the birth of Moshe, well, then the sin was rectified. And he compares Exodus two point two. Vatera osokitov. She saw that Moshe was good. You compare that to Genesis chapter three, verse six, where Eve sees that it is good. What does she see? She sees the tree. It is good. It's the exact same verse because these are two end caps of one story. The sin and the rectification of the sin. When Jacob tells his sons to go down to Egypt, redo, go down, 42.2 of Genesis. Redu Shama, go down there for 210 years. The word Shama, which means there, it's the same letters as Moshe. Go there for 210 years because you need to access Moshe. You need 130 years before Moshe to cleanse all those souls to be able to access the good, the pure soul of Moshe. You now it's a common motif throughout the Kabbalistic literature that Moshe shares the same soul as Seth, as Shais. And both of them are born after 130 years of problematic souls. Adam spends 130 years in the river Dichon in the hot tub. And only after 130 years does he return to his wife, and Seth is born, Shais. Moshe, same thing. 130 years of problematic souls being filtered out and then then arise Moshe. The same thing as as Chase, as Seth. And what's Moshe called? He's called Moshe. Why is he called Moshe? Chapter 2 of Exodus verse 10. Ki for I have drawn him out of the waters. Moshe was drawn out of the problematic waters. He's the first one to emerge from those waters. To not be subject to that river, to that gichon, to that hatab. Oh. He's like Chase. He's like Seth. Minhamayim Mishisiu. The word Mishisiu is the, is the same root as the word Chase, as the word Seth. So again, we're seeing all sorts of deep ideas here. Of course, this is telling us the, the centrality of, of this whole subject. Adam's sin, like our whole nation, Jacob, spending 130 years trying to rectify it. Now, the Megalomukos continues and says, well, it wasn't just Adam who was guilty of the sin. He brings proof that the flood of Noah had an element of, of this. Quotes the Zohar. The Zohar says that uh, the verse in chapter 6 of Genesis tells us that I am mashchisam Esaarets. I'm going to be mashchis. I'm going to destroy So that's a term, that's a verb that's often used with spilling of seed. Says the Zohar, the verdict of the generation of the flood was only because they corrupted in this area, in the area that coincides with the circumcision, with the covenant with God. Oh, and the Tower of Babel, the dispersion, it also contained an element of this sort of corruption. And those souls were in need of rectification. And they also made their way down to Egypt. Joseph in Egypt, what did he mandate that the Egyptians do before they were fed? The verse tells us, chapter 41, verse 55, the people come to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, whatever... Joseph tells you to do, do. And Rashi explains, because Joseph was telling them to circumcise. Joseph had a requirement. Before you give you food, you must circumcise. Why did Joseph want to circumcise the Egyptians? The Kabbalists tell us. Joseph understood that these souls, they are the same souls from the generation of the flood and the Tower of Babel. And a way to fix it, If their corruption came because they were negligent in matters of, of protecting the sanctity of this capacity to mimic God and procreate, the way to do it is to reinstall, so to speak, the presence of God in that region to circumcise. Why do we circumcise? It's not for hygienic reasons. It's a pact with God, to guard his covenant. And it's specifically over there to only deploy this superpower of ours that we can produce humans like God did, to only deploy it in permissible and mitzvah uses. Joseph sought to rectify the souls of the generation of the flood and the dispersal, and he did it by circumcising them. And those people, continues the Kabbalists, They, who were cleansed by Joseph, they became the mixed multitude. So they they joined the Jewish people eventually because they were grounded in this holiness that Joseph brought about. This is a beautiful essay, sprawling as I promised, but it teaches us, I think, some very useful ideas. First of all, it shows us the importance of this whole subject. So more broadly, we learned about the attribute of Jacob. It's, it's about truth. And it's about having nothing extra, nothing wasteful, nothing purposeless. Everything's purposeful. Nothing is in vain. And the fact that the first mitzvah given to the Jewish people is about this subject, it's because this subject, this mitzvah really symbolizes what we're trying to do. Man was created in the image of God. I don't know what that means. There are, there are literally books written about that. Very thick books. Very advanced books. But on a very basic level, it means that there's something that we can do that rivals, that parallels, that mirrors God. Well, what do we know about God? He created the world. Well, what does that mean? He created humanity. That's the purpose of creation. That's something that we can do as well. That's our superpower. That's how we can be in the image of God. And when someone wastes that, when someone misdirects or misappropriates it, then they're taking their superpower, their greatest capacity, their capacity to achieve transcendental and eternal greatness, the greatest gift from the Almighty, and their Just throwing it away and giving it to a harmful place. And that's the very first mitzvah, the circumcision. It's a, it's a pact with God to deploy this superpower in the proper way. And you know what? If someone is not in a pact with God in this area, well, they are submitted to the foreign God, to a different deity. And as the Talmud says, well, it's like idolatry on some level. And if this is what we're standing for, this is what we're living for, this is what our life's really all about. This is what Adam corrupted and what we're trying to fix and what our forefathers did a lot of work to help us fix and what our the first mitzvah that we're given as a people, the first Jewish mitzvah is is about this. That shows us this, this is what life's all about. And if someone is ignoring this and not partaking in this battle, and not working hard to preserve their bris, to preserve this sacrosanct superpower. Well, maybe, maybe they're opting out of what life's all about here. So I promised you it's an important subject. It's an interesting subject. And it's one that I, I never, never really spoke about before. And I did get some criticism about the fact that I never spoke about it. But I'll tell you, there are different schools of thought about how to approach this. Some have the tradition to speak about it a lot. I was fortunate to be part of the yeshiva system. And the policy in the yeshiva system is to not really address it. But everyone really agrees that this struggle and this battle lies at the heart of our our religious and spiritual life. Some people have a perception that, well, there's no way that you can control yourself in this area. That is false. It's not true. Jacob, of course, he's the total outlier. He's the greatest of all time in this area. There was no wasting of any seed at all. But even today, there are people who are completely in control of this. Even today, people are not condemned to being under the spell of Lil, of Jane Doe, to use Robert Cohen's terminology, of the Itzara. It's not infeasible. In fact, it is completely doable. I thank you for listening. This was a fun way to cap off year 2023 on the Parsha podcast. It's the end of the book of Genesis. I'm enjoying the dad format, going a bit deeper behind the scenes, beneath the surface, into the subtext of the Parsha. I hope you enjoyed this one as well. If you want to criticize me for talking about this, I accept criticism at RabbiWolbejim.com. Send me an email. I'm in the Torch Center using Texas. If you want to support our work, we deeply appreciate it torchweb.org you find the links in the description everyone have a wonderful rest of your day a splendid and fantastic and elevating and transformative Shabbos upcoming and please God with help the money. we'll talk again next week in good health and in great spirits and again the email address is rabbiwolby at gmail.com